0: Welcome to the Dr. Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. you started to do research about the PDMP a few years ago, and you connected with our guest today, attorney Jen Oliva. And I was just looking at her CV. I was blown away by what she has accomplished. Why did you first reach out to Jen? So Jen
1: is actually one of my favorite people. I love working with her and collaborating with her. So I was on Twitter and I was reading Kaladni's tweets as I would do. This was a few years ago. And I saw this person and it was Jennifer Oliva. And she was pushing back like she wasn't being rude but she was pushing back and saying wait a second how is that true do you show me evidence because this is what the facts are and he would push back and she would say that doesn't make sense and and what you're saying isn't real it's the false narrative and they were talking about opioid epidemic and pain patients and all of this so I just took a chance and I messaged her and I was like can I talk to you because it seems like you understand what's going on and she was so kind and she did she called me and we spent uh, quite a while on the phone and we were talking about the PDMP and we were talking about Narc's Care and I explained to her about how I started advocating in the situation that happened to me in the hospital where I was denied opioids for kidney stones because I was sexually abused as a child. I told her that the only reason the doctor knew was because of the PDMP that he saw in and asked me what I was taking it for. So she seemed extremely interested, which I was grateful for because I was shocked by the whole thing that happened to me. And I was shocked when I gathered stories from other people, but it surely didn't seem like many other people were shocked. It just... I don't know I was kind of told by other advocates like no one's gonna care and it's not a big deal but to me it was a huge deal to me it seemed like a civil rights issue and the fact that there are things like narcs care and we don't know if it's worked into narcs care to me is a very big problem so Jen seemed to agree with me and that's how we started talking.
0: Welcome to this episode of the doctor patient forum don't forget folks if you like what you heard today Leave us a note, tell your friends and family about us, because this podcast is yet another way to discuss the untreated pain crisis in America. Today, we're going to be discussing the PDMP, that stands for Prescription Monitor Program, and we're going to be discussing risk scores. Now, if you're tuning into us, some of you probably don't know what either one of these things mean, but I can assure you, they have greatly affected the ability for a doctor to Treat your pain. Our guest today is attorney Jen Oliva. She's a law professor whose teaching interests include health law and policy, privacy law, evidence torts, and complex litigation. She was selected as seat in school's 2021 professor of the year because it gets better because i didn't know this she's a united states army veteran she attended she attended people west point military academy she's strong she's been a voice for the forgotten victim of the opioid epidemic and she's written extensively on this issue and as a side note jen you're cool as shit welcome to
2: the show Thanks for having me Claudia it's an absolute thrill to be with you guys today.
0: Jen, I was reading your CV online and I was screaming to the other to my 17-year-old in the other room. I said, "Ava, get your ass in here because this this is a strong woman this is how we should be represented and you are a rock star now i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna throw accolades at you for the next 30 minutes but i can't tell you how much respect i have for you so thank you for joining the show
2: no thanks so much you're too kind
0: jen Bev reached out to you a few years ago because she had some grave concerns about the PDMP and Narc's care. And she would follow Andrew Kolodny's tweets and she would notice that you didn't back down and, and you were never rude. Uh, you were always polite, but you would not
2: back down.
1: Sorry, this sounds cut out. But what Claudia asks Jen is what made you interested in the PDMP?
2: Well, several things. Um, as you already mentioned, uh, Claudia, I'm an Army veteran. And um, my research area up until meeting Bev really had, had focused mostly on substance use disorder and mental health, and especially with veterans. But one of the things that I'd started to see with veterans that I was representing, and I was in West Virginia at the time, was this, many of them had been on fairly complex drug regimens, and suddenly the tide shifted, and many of them were either being abandoned by the VA force tapered by the VA, taken off medications that had improved their functionality for years by the VA, and some of them were even getting in, into trouble. Spoke with Bev, I had that background, and then started to realize how big of a problem this was across the country for complex pain patients, not just folks in VA care. And I started to um, uh, become intensely interested in investigating it.
0: Let's talk a little bit for our listeners, because these are lay people. How is a person rated when they have to fill prescriptions, controlled substances? Maybe they get a higher risk score if they travel too far from the pharmacy to the doctor's office. So let's let's touch base about risk scores.
2: Yeah. So in response to this you know, prescription drug crisis. That was, you know, the news narrative every day, beginning and really in the early aughts around the turn of the century, the federal government started heavily funding states to develop these prescription drug monitoring programs that you already mentioned, Claudia. And what those are is an electronic version of sort of a drug, a prescription drug collection data bank, right? So these prescription drug monitoring programs, which all states have, Uh, Missouri is still working on standing its up, but St. Louis County has had one since 2017. So if you're in any jurisdiction in the United States, assume that your information is getting collected by a prescription drug monitoring program. They collect a a bevy of information about the uh, individual patient, the prescriber, the dispenser, which is typically a community pharmacist or a hospital pharmacist. That's the individual responsible for inputting All this information into this database and it collects up all this information there's a ton of other information sources folks are quite secretive about this but uh, they collect information from veterinarians in most jurisdictions some jurisdictions collect information from drug courts uh, some mental health they often collect information from ehrs and share those with one another across the states drug court information drug arrest and conviction information
1: i want to address two things that jen just said One, that sometimes they may collect information from the electronic health records. And two, about arrests, convictions, drug court data, and all of that. We've received pushback from even doctors saying there's no way that they have access to these electronic health records because they'd have to have an agreement with every single one of them that we're spreading misinformation. But I want to play a portion of a... YouTube video. It was a um, presentation at Duke Margolis by Jim Huzwenga. He is the head of, at the time, Abras Health, and he addressed both how they had agreements with electronic health record companies and also how they collected criminal justice data. So I'm going to play these two portions for you.
3: Automated integrations um, make the data usable and uh, and expanding the scope and the functionality. Of the PDMP. We provide technology that allows for an automated query to occur in line with all those other patient events so that before the prescriber or before the pharmacist is actually interacting with the patient, this information has already been gathered and assessed and, and placed for them to be referenced. Uh, the way we've gotten there, you know, there's more than like 5,000 hospitals and uh, untold numbers. Uh, of pharmacies and individual offices. And if we want to integrate the PDMP data into workflow, we can't do it one by one. We have to go to some other point in that process, and that point we determined is with the EHR manufacturers. So we've been building this technology into these platforms so it can simply be turned on, and we're doing the same with the pharmacy manufacturers. So we've had some pretty good results um, since we've been working with integration, Uh, integrating PDMPs into workflow for both clinicians and pharmacists. We have, last year alone, brought PDMP data automatically into workflow 288 million times. That's a good step uh, forward. Automated integrations make the data usable and then expand the scope and functionality. Now I know
1: some people will say well that just shows that they integrated the PDMP data right into workflow of electronic health records so that doesn't show that it ever went in the other direction. The point is they did mention in training manuals and marketing manuals for years, that as soon as they were allowed to use EHR data, they would. So the important part, in my opinion here, is to realize by doing what they did and what he just explained to you, they set it up to be able to take information both ways. Do they use it that way? Well, we don't know, and why don't we know? Well, because their algorithm is proprietary and no one's allowed to know what's in it.
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the the use scores.
3: We are actively working right now on bringing holistic data into the PDMP viewpoint. So that means that we are looking at bringing claims data, continuity of care documents. We're looking at even at the role of criminal justice information. APRIS Health is part of APRIS and APRIS as a company... uh, has a lot of criminal justice data in the country. About 85% of all the jails and bookings and events in the country that uh, happen uh, are managed by our company. Uh, That did put us in a position, though, to um, be able to uh, look at the effect of criminal justice data on um, unintentional overdose deaths as far as predicting risk. And we routinely work with states, and uh, we get get data from the states uh, along the lines of... uh, unintentional overdose, death, and identities of patients that have suffered that. Um, We uh, have uh, access, with their permission, to all their PDMP data.
1: Did you catch that? He just said, Appers Health, now Bamboo, has the permission to access all of their PDMP data. Right? Did you give them permission to access this data? Because this data is your data. Your PDMP data, the company gave permission to APRIS Health to access it, right? Because HIPAA doesn't really apply to these companies, and we will go into this more in the next episode. It's actually not fully clear to me by his statement whether it's the PDMP companies that give him access, because that confuses me since. Their company is the one who has most of these platforms, or if it's the states that house the PDMP that gives them access. I'm not really sure which one it is, but one of these two companies or whatever gives them access to your. Data and you don't have a say into whether that permission is given. One of the most common questions I get when speaking about NARCS care and PDMP is why doesn't HIPAA protect us when it comes to PDMPs and NARCS care? So Jen gave me the short answer, which is that PDMP agencies are not HIPAA protected entities. And the next podcast is going to be with a analyst who is going to go into the harms of the PDMP. And then we will go into that question about HIPAA in detail. But just the short answer is these PDMP agencies are not HIPAA-protected entities. There is also something called the third-party loophole or exclusion, and we will go into that and what it means in the next episode also.
3: And we have a data science team that goes through and and looks at all that information and, uh, and helps them to understand it and also builds tools. So we have a tool called an overdose risk score. It's a three digit score and it numerically represents overdose risk on a continuous scale between zero and 999. We took all of the criminal justice data in coordination with the state. In that state, we put it up against the PDMP data We assess the relative impact of including the criminal justice data in the model that predicted unintentional overdose risk. The criminal justice data uh, and other types of data that represent those other sources of risk, incredibly important to put into that PDMP viewpoint. How to destigmatize it. I mean, um, you know, as an emergency physician, uh, I don't want to see someone's arrest record in my EHR. I don't. I don't think it's appropriate. But I also don't want to be blinded to potentially really important information about that patient and how I can manage them. So ways that we can do that. I mean, one of the ways is is we can use this information and we can put it into models that accurately predict risk. And we don't necessarily have to tell the providers all the sources of data for those models. Sometimes that data, it's 80 different elements of risk within a prescription drug record. It's 80 little tiny points. They don't need to know that. They just need to believe in the model. Okay, so we can, we can do it. We can solve it and we can convert criminal justice data to medical information if we need to show it so we can just perhaps someone who was arrested for heroin. We present that within an EHR as history of heroin use, and it doesn't have, they don't have to know that it came from the criminal justice system, but to to avoid using it, I think would be a mistake.
1: I want to make sure you caught that also. He mentioned there are as many as 80 data points that go into this risk score and that the doctors who are using this risk score to make decisions They don't need to know what goes into it because that's not important. All they need to do is to trust the product. But how can they trust the product when they don't know what's going into it?
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the the use scores.
2: So all this goes into this pot. So what happens is private software company, 43 of these states are serviced in this endeavor by a company named Bam- Bamboo Health, it used to be called Apris Health, has created this platform uh, that creates risk scores. So they do something with all this information and spit out at least three or four numbers about every individual patient. They, they um, spit out a narcotic score, a stimulant score, and the most important one um, is this overall risk score. And this This is a numeric three-digit number, And it purports to represent the patient's overall level of risk, uh, the risk associated with prescribing the patient a particular substance. And in this context, and this is what it was designed for, opioids. And the argument goes that the higher your risk score is, the more likely you are at risk for drug misuse, drug diversion, overdose. And, and the like. And, and there's a variety of factors that, that the company has told us that it uses uh, when it calculates history scores, but they're not transparent about it because it's a private company and a black box algorithm.
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the use the scores.
2: The people at At APRIS. Who's
0: writing these
2: these computer programs? Are they
0: doctors? Are they engineers?
4: Who's writing them? Well,
2: they're they're not completely transparent about that either.
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the the use scores.
2: What I can say about the risk scoring is PDMPs themselves are not developed as clinical diagnostic tools in the traditional way we might think of one. So, for example, they weren't developed by clinicians who were interested in if we feed a computer program a bunch of and around a tumor in the body that's been caught by radiology? Will the computer learn to, in this program, learn to identify who may be at risk of developing this at earlier and earlier stages so the intervention can be better? Instead, these risk scores were developed by these private companies by looking at Sort of old overdose data for the purpose of aiding law enforcement and Medicaid fraud agencies in identifying patients who are at risk and, more importantly, as they've been used, over prescribing or over dispensing certain categories of drugs and the focus has as as we've already noted
1: the sound cut out again but what jen was saying is that they primarily have been worried about opioids although they do score other categories of controlled
2: substances Uh, do score other categories of drugs they're all worried about muscle relaxants they're worried about benzodiazepines they're worried about classes of sedatives But opioids has been the primary focus. So the short answer to your question is what we understand is that they have coders at the private company that take a number of factors, you know, how many prescribers you have, how many dispensers you have, how far do you live in your record of address in the PDMP from those prescribers and dispensers, so that distance traveled. How are you paying for your prescription? Are you paying with private insurance, public insurance, credit card or cash? And they penalize people who are underinsured in that category. Uh, There are a number of factors they admit that they use. And then, like I said, they've incorporated all these other data points. And we really don't know how they're weighted in the algorithm. Like, how is your mental health history weighted? And what about that is weighted? How do they weight a conviction or just an arrest that is later proven to go nowhere uh, in a PDMP. We can't know that because the information is proprietary.
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the the use scores.
2: So if
0: you're a minority patient with sickle cell who
4: has had a
0: past... Uh, offense, even if it's, you know, a traffic offense or anything, th- th- this person's going to have a very difficult time because they could have a high NARCS care score because they're a person who is probably dependent on high doses of opioids. Maybe they've had some problems in the past. And, and it seems like NARCS care has taken all of this into consideration and they're then they're going to spit out a score. So, what we've become is a score in society.
2: That's right. And, and a lot of this information can be
1: inaccurate. I want to take a minute to comment on what Jen just said about there possibly being errors in the PDMP and then also in risk scores. We know, of course, there's going to be errors in the PDMP itself, just from human error. I mean, the pharmacist and the pharmacy technician are the ones who enter the information in right so there's always going to be a certain level of errors i've never seen a study on the errors in the pdmp but i would love to see that another part of this issue is because patients don't have regular access to their pdmp reports there's really no way for us to know if there are errors in it or not and then of course there's errors in risk scores because when it pulls from data sources with errors then it's going to have errors in it right like garbage in garbage out so You pull from possibly electronic health records, criminal justice data, PDMP, and whatever the other 80 data points are that Dr. Juzwego was talking about. There's going to be errors in them, and then you pull from that, and then there's going to be errors in the risk score that spit out. So I just want to play a few quotes. One is uh, from Maya when she was on NPR. One is from Kate uh, when she was speaking at the other webinar. That we will link in the show notes. And then later on, you'll hear Kate discuss an actual case study where these errors were huge and uh, it really affected a patient's NARCS care score.
5: And when you present a summary score as objective that comes from data that may not be objective or that may be inaccurate, it's a real problem.
6: There are concerns about the fidelity of the data. It is subject to human input error and there is no easy way to correct it.
1: What Kate just said is really important because patients don't have immediate access to their PDMP in most states. In some states, they don't have access at all. You usually have to send away for it. It can take a month or longer to get it. And then once you get it, then if you see errors, then you have to try to fix it, which I know in some states could take up to six months, if at all. So... That's a really big problem because all the while these errors are in the PDMP, it's being worked into your NARCS care score. And then once you fix the PDMP, who knows how long it takes to fix it in the NARCS care score itself. But now let's listen to Dr. Rawat discuss basically, you know, so errors are rare and if they're there, then they're easy to fix.
4: Sometimes maybe there's misentry where a pet prescription is entered under a human name and, and date of birth, uh, that's rare. If it happens, there's a way to
2: uh, to correct that. A lot of it hasn't been tested for validity. You're absolutely right. There's pile-on factors. One of the things I note, Claudia, in my paper is, let's take the exact patient type that you just suggested. This person has mental health screening in the packet because they've been the victim of some kind of, you're right, a past, any kind of criminal record. And again, I don't know how they use them, but some states, as I already said, admit that they incorporate this information into their PDMP risk scoring, but that could impact you on the way up. You don't even have to have ever been prescribed an opioid to have a narcotics risk score. And NARCs care because they score you on, they start upping your score before you're ever even prescribed in the category. So yeah, these things pile on and pile on and pile on. So you can have a fairly substantial risk score the first time you may even be prescribed an opioid.
1: Can I jump in here? I just want to say something about this whole like racism and underprivileged, because this is part of the thing that I was so shocked when I saw this. Because we all know our prison system, right? Like it's almost just like slavery in another form. So if you're going to have a higher chance of a criminal justice record, if you're black, I mean, that's just the way it is in this country. And then you're already marginalized if you're underprivileged, because if you don't have insurance... Or, you know, like if you don't qualify for Medicaid, say, and then you have to pay cash. And then because of that, you are marginalized again. And then your score will go higher. It just seems like, you know, it's so tremendously biased against women who have a higher chance of having mental health issues or reporting sexual abuse against Black people, against underprivileged financially without resources. Those without resources in this country are so targeted by these things. And everyone, like, bipartisan. Everyone's supporting it.
2: Yeah. And this has been a problem in all sorts of healthcare algorithms. So it was easy to see coming. I mean, many of them have proven to be racist based on on number. They're really just like, to your point, Bev, they're mimicking these other proxies around socioeconomics. They're mimicking these proxies uh, related to great disparities, troubling disparities in the criminal justice system. Here in Narc's care, we have a uh, Discriminatory factor based on if you live in a rural environment, your distance traveled is going to be greater. What if you live in an environment where, because of all this surveillance and crackdowns, there are very few providers or specialists?
1: Now, let's hear what Kate Nicholson has to say about. Narc's care and PDMP and how it can affect marginalized people and minorities.
6: And of course, the complications are even higher for marginalized populations. There was a, an epic study that Dr. Carmen Green did that showed that even, even factoring income in, that opioids are far less available stocked and stocked in pharmacies in Black neighborhoods than they are in white neighborhoods.
1: So now let's hear what Dr. Rawat said on NPR when addressing this bias or racism in NARC's care.
4: Healthcare inequity is something that's personal to me. I'm a, a, a woman, I'm a minority, and, and I'm, I'm human. And I, I can tell you that the use scores, the overdose risk score, are run on every single individual, uh, irrespective of race, um, gender. Uh, and, and religion and, and other potential discriminatory uh, factors. Uh, so whenever someone checks the PDMP, they, they see those scores. It doesn't matter uh, who you are.
1: So if you notice, she didn't actually address the fact that there's racial or gender bias in Narc's care at all. All she did was she addressed the fact that it didn't matter what race you were or what gender you were, because everyone has a risk score. But that actually doesn't address the issue at all. She didn't address the fact that if you are of a certain race or gender, that you have a, a higher chance of a higher risk score. All she said was everyone gets a risk score.
2: What if you're you have a condition or complex condition where the standard of care or the traditional practice involves seeing multiple providers, right? And having oncology is a classic example. This is unusual not to have four or five prescribers uh, when you go to a hospital, an emergency department visit. You're, you. It's very common to have multiple prescribers over a short period of time when you're having acute episodes of a chronic illness. So several of these things were really easy to predict based on the patient population, but yet they're baked in and cooked into these risk scores.
1: Let's hear what attorney Kate Nicholson had to say about how the PDMP and Narc's care measures multiple prescribers and if it affects patients.
6: The other aspect is shopping. So a primary goal of PDMPs is to root out shopping. And what that is, is when patients go either from pharmacy to pharmacy or doctor to doctor, trying to get more medication than is really medically indicated for their condition. So to stop that, PDMPs flag the number of providers somebody sees. And my question is, that's sort of a proxy for misuse, but are they really accurate? Because there are other reasons that people might have um, multiple providers. For example, uh, what we call care deserts, the outgoing president of the American Medical Association got up the last of their interim meeting um, and she's a cancer doctor. And she told a story about a patient she had who had late stage prostate cancer that had spread to his bones. He was in a lot of pain. And so she prescribed medication for him, but she was in a city and he was in a rural area. So she prescribed through his primary care provider. And when this gentleman went in to fill his prescription, the pharmacist refused to fill it. She said he was a drug seeker because he had multiple providers, um, and, and she just wasn't going to fill his prescription. And he was an older gentleman who felt very ashamed. And so he just went home and tried to endure his pain, but he was unable to. And three days later, he tried to kill himself. So multiple providers can happen in academic settings too. It's not just the sort of rural versus urban. Not everyone just sees one doctor. And it, ironically, in the current environment, we're actually encouraging people to uh, participate in the very behavior that we're monitoring people for. So for example, most people, if they went to a a pharmacy and wanted to fill a prescription and the pharmacy denied it and they weren't allowed to pay, would probably go to another pharmacy and try and fill it there. But then they're getting logged. They're going to multiple pharmacies. And if someone is abandoned by their doctor, they're probably gonna go find another doctor, but then they're getting multiple prescribers. So we're actually encouraging this behavior.
1: Next, you'll hear Kate discuss an actual case study
6: 53-year-old woman. She has failed back surgery since syndrome from a surgical error. They actually performed the wrong surgery on her and removed part of her spine. She also has other conditions that can cause pain. From 2009 to 2017, she received care from a single pain management practice, but it had a rotating staff of PAs and MDs. So that resulted in her having seven prescribers on her PDMP. In 2017, the head of the practice closed the practice. A group came in to transition, gave people two different prescribers, so that added two more. Now she's in a new pain management practice, which also has two MDs and a PA. So now she's got 12 prescriptions um, on prescribers on her PDMP file. In 2019, she was alerted to an error. The current prescriber was listed twice, once with a first and last name and once with a middle initial. So she has a total of 13 prescribers on her PDMP. And normally patients won't ever know this information. Her prescriber actually shared it with her. So she has a really high NARCS care score, 522. That's about as high as it can get. Only about five percent of patients have a score that high, but she's never had aberrant actions. She's never failed a urine drug test. She's never called on a weekend or emergency for more pain medicine. She's passed all the standards required by her pain management contract, and no provider has ever believed she ever misused medication. The total number of practices she saw care from was two, but she can't find a primary care doctor because of her Narc's care score, and she was recently denied treatment at an emergency room when she went passing a kidney stone because they said they didn't even admit her. They, gave, they did give her a prescription for a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but they said, we you know, the only reason we'd admit you is for pain care and we won't treat you because of your Narcos care
5: score. I've also heard a lot from doctors at academic medical centers who say that because their patients are being treated by a team, it looks like they're doctor shopping because they have you know, 20 different doctors caring for them, but they're all working together. So this can come up and, and mess up somebody's scores.
1: Now, Dr. Verwat, the CMO of Bamboo Health.
4: If you are receiving coordinated care by 20 physicians, <laughs> right? Um, your overdose risk score, your use scores will not be elevated. Again, having many physicians by itself, um, as long as there's not significant overlap uh, with the prescriptions, uh, should not elevate your score.
1: So now you've heard two different lawyers say the same thing, that multiple prescribers can greatly affect your Narc's care score. And you've heard Dr. Rawat say that that's not true. The best way to see if Dr. Verwat and Bamboo Health are actually telling the truth is for them to show us their algorithm and what affects it.
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the the use scores. Does anybody
0: regulate narcs care?
2: No, so it's entirely unregulated. And one of the things I wanted to say, trying to think about how to get, how to get listeners interested, is state governments pay for these systems. Just looking at the Indiana, it's called inspect. They use Bamboo Health's Narc's Care platform. And I was looking at their annual report and Indiana employs eight people and spends $3.5 million a year on Narc's Care. That's above and beyond the tens of millions of dollars they spent purchasing the system, right? So it's just an example, um, because I just happened to be looking at Indiana yesterday for something I'm working on. And you can go to any state and, and see this. So state taxpayers are paying. For states to purchase these platforms from a private company that has made hundreds of millions of dollars on this and says, we can't tell you what's in the recipe. We're not going to tell you what's in the brownie that we're forcing you to eat.
4: We're very transparent about what goes into the, the use scores.
2: Right. We're forcing these NARX care. So the state law then requires people to query. You have to enter the information. You have to look it up. So it's sitting there before your eyes, this three-digit score, and the healthcare delivery system, and states are requiring that, and taxpayers are paying for it, for that, and they've never been externally validated. Folks who have tried to get in this business, Angela Kilby, uh, who I talk about in my paper, is a wonderful health economist at Northeastern University. She tried to mimic a platform like Narc's Care and found out that it was wrong 89% of the time, right? either flagging people it shouldn't be or flagging folks that it ought to have. And so basically her statement was, and I don't think you can get it any simpler than this. She said, the algorithm does not measure, cannot measure what it purports to measure Based on her research. So it's not been externally validated. Folks have attempted to mimic it and it's been a fail. And thus far, um, agencies that potentially could regulate these things, like the FTC and FDA, have avoided direct regulation of these kinds of algorithms.
1: Why are they avoiding it, Jen? Like, why aren't they like caring about this? I mean, they're using something that doesn't have evidence and they wouldn't even know if it has evidence because we don't even know what's in it. So they have no idea what what they're paying for that's being used to target doctors, target patients, make medical decisions. Why wouldn't they want to regulate it? ONC or FDA, like what are they waiting for? Because Claudia and I called them, Jen. I just have to tell you this, Claudia and I called the FDA a few years ago, I think it might have been before you and I even spoke. And I was because I said to Claudia, I was like, the FDA, someone has to regulate this, this makes no sense that no one's regulating it. So we called the FDA, they get on the phone, you remember this, Claudia, they get on the phone, and they're like, what's narc's care? And we were like, what do you mean? You don't know what it is. And they were like, we've never heard of it. We have no idea. Like, that's insane to me. Why aren't they doing this?
2: Well, there's a couple reasons. The first thing I do want to point out is that, of course, FDA would never let a drug right, go on the market without you know, years of clinical trials and extensive reviews by experts and has to be approved by the agency uh, to treat a patient. Uh, but they, they're allowing these diagnostic AI tools to be used fairly loosely without any oversight. One of the reasons why this has been difficult for the FDA is they categorize this kind of platform as a medical device, it's a specific subcategory called software as a medical device. And um, they've really struggled, the FDA, they put out new guidance, uh, at least annually, now they've really struggled how to regulate diagnostic algorithms and whether they should intervene or shouldn't intervene. And um, so this unfortunately falls into a category of products where the FDA has really struggled I mean, one argument's been if you have a machine learning algorithm, how can you even regulate it? At some point, the coders don't even know what the AI is doing. We, we don't have that situation here now, at least in so far as we know, this is a more of a static algorithm. But the FDA has gone back and forth on how to regulate these things, how to classify them, uh, what what a company would have to show pre-market and otherwise. And um, thus far, the rule in the United States is, you can put these products on the market without any agency at the federal or state level validating it or approving it before it's used to um, as a clinical diagnostic tool. That, that's where we're at right now. Well, the argument that I made in my paper, and there's several ways you could you could challenge these things, but the argument that I made in this particular paper uh, was an attempt to not put the burden back on pain patients as our first order of business by saying every individual person needs to file a lawsuit, right? I was thinking, like, how can we handle this in a broader fashion? And I did make the argument that the FDA has the authority uh, under its Medical device regulations and the statute to regulate these things. And that if they place NARCS care to the test under this three point criteria that they've developed for this kind of AI, the FDA does have guidance documents where they're saying, here's criteria that we would look at. My argument in the paper was NARCS care would fail. I think it's also important to make these arguments, even if, and I understand it's upsetting, it's upsetting to me too, even if the FDA is clutching its pearls, so to speak, or, you know, Waffling when you start making it public, like you you two are doing, that um, there should there is no oversight. There should be oversight, and the FDA and and uh, DOJ become more interested in these things. And I think that it also incentivizes these private companies to start thinking about, well, what if we were tomorrow placed under this scrutiny? Will we survive? And that that by itself, I don't want to overstate it often motivates companies to move in the right direction, start taking a much more serious look at these products. We really need FDA continue to make strong statements here and start putting some of these algorithms to the test so that these private companies that are making huge profits off of this from state taxpayers take this stuff seriously.
0: Have you ever spoken with the president of April.
2: No, I listened to uh, that, that 1A podcast, Bev, when you and Maya were on there, <laughs> yes. and I I was appalled. And only thing I can tell you is reporters who have covered this that have ever reached out to me to ask my thoughts or read my papers have frequently said to me, well, either bamboo or spray apres- didn't respond to a request for information from them, or they push back much in the way that we saw that pushback on 1A by insisting that, you know, these things were internally validated. They are not meant to actually force a doctor into a particular treatment decision making. They're just guidance or help. They sort of make the same pushback that I think both of you heard when um, that 1A interview, that NPR interview um, was conducted. And we have the
0: link to the, the NPR uh, interview. And that interview came about because of Bev. Bev was denied pain medication in the hospital. And, you know, the hospital is this evil evil hospitalist out of North Carolina would not treat Bev's kidney stone pain because she was, she's a pre-adolescent sexual abuse survivor. And this doctor said, well, I can't, you know, give you the medication because it's going to change your brain chemistry or some horseshit like that. Bev called me crying from the hospital bed. And it's because of Bev's constant, constant, you know, she was researching Narc's care for years. And then she reached out to you and then that you reached out to to Maya. And from where I'm sitting, it's only women who are fighting this evil algorithm. Where are the men to my male listeners, get off your ass and get involved. (laughs) Why is it always the women fighting? Jen? it's so frustrating. So Jen, I real important question. What is there a tie? Any do you think there's any financial tie? And I know you're a lawyer. So you got to be careful. But do you think there's anything financially between the PDMP, Andrew Kolodny, and APRES? Are they connected, do you think?
2: I don't know. I mean, I what I can say is that, you know, a lot of the folks that you're talking about here who were leading this crusade, deprescribing, right, crusade, who who just don't want opioids prescribed at all, are big fans of the PDMP. I mean, they very vocally in public. And We've talked about Twitter already, but in articles they've written and other things have defended PDMPs. So I don't know about their financial ties, but I can say that they're fans or advocates for the PDMP in public statements. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, in 2014, I just tweeted this today, May 4th, 2014. This was, you know, we know Andrew Kaladny works with Brandeis and they house the PDMP. On May 4th, 2014, um, in an NPR interview, Kaladny said,
3: prescription drug monitoring programs are probably our best tool for bringing this crisis under control. When we talk about opioid pain pills, we're essentially talking about heroin pills. If you are going to be prescribing a dangerous drug, taking two minutes to make sure that that patient hasn't been receiving it from other prescribers is worthwhile. And unfortunately, if we don't make it mandatory, doctors are just not going to do it.
1: Listen to what Gary Mandel from Shatterproof had to say. Andrew Kalani is on Gary Mandel's board. He is extremely involved in drug policy, especially the PDMP. He wrote a white paper about the PDMP, including data analytics on it. He was invited to speak about the CDC guidelines. He also was invited to speak about the President's Commission in 2017. So he has a lot of influence on drug policy. Listen to what he says about the PDMP.
3: Let's talk for just a minute here, Gary, about drug monitoring programs. You make some points about the fact that most states now have those in place. So the doctors are supposed to report to them, but there's inconsistency from state to state in terms of how that is Overseen, And also, there's a lot of data that we could mine there, it seems, to really learn about this thing and learn what's really happening out there. So can you comment on the reporting overall and your thoughts in terms of how quickly it should be turned around and the requirements that should be placed on that? And also, give us your thoughts, might be what we might be able to learn from all of the data if we got access to it. Sure. Uh, I'm a strong component of prescription drug monitoring programs. But again, I'm going to refer back to this is not my personal opinion. This is rooted in science. This is rooted in evidence. Our National Institutes of Health, CDC, every government governmental agency within the health area recommends universal use of prescription drug monitoring programs. So I am just repeating what I've learned. So why why am I repeating what I learned?
1: to me in the hospital. The doctor came in to me and said, I looked at your prescription database and I saw you've got an Ativan. Why? They keep saying how amazing it is, how it's all about doctor shopping, how they're going to fix this crisis. And like Kalani said, it's the best tool, our best bet. But see any evidence of benefit i mean they say there's lowered prescribing and doctors have been arrested and they count that as a benefit but i'm talking about actual patient outcome or overdose reduction or even reduction of addiction all i see is harm
2: well you know people joke around sometimes in 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 When they're talking about businesses and they say, you know, a budget is your value document, right? And with these algorithms, what we can say is, you know, what does the algorithm port to measure? What inputs does it collect and what output is it is it trying to measure? PDMPs do not measure. Patient outcomes, period. There's no box for that. There's no score for the patient's doing better or worse. The doctor can't use the PDMP to say, I made this prescribing decision in November and I made this prescribing decision 60 days later, would have been the impacts on the patient. That's not part of what the PDMP does. And nothing explains this better than the fact that PDMPs do not and have never collected patient diagnosis or condition. So you're getting scored blind by this algorithm created by this private company blind of your healthcare care conditions and diagnoses
1: it just seems to me that the only purpose was a forensic tool claudia and i had called at when it was it was at first at the time saying can you give us information about your product and the sales girl she was like well most people think this is just about patients and seeing patients who are getting dangerous medication or too much medication, but really what's so good about our product is we make it very easy for doctors to turn in other doctors if they think that they're prescribing to someone with a high score is, do you think the whole goal of this, like we know a lot of it's, we know like how Rogers, a lot of it's funded and it's tied in with DOJ funding and was it really truly made for a forensic tool or was there ever an actual goal to help patient outcome?
2: Well, uh, on the one hand, someone who's a proponent of this is going to say, if you believe this, right, if we reduce prescribing of opioids, we're going to reduce the harmful outcomes of opioid use disorder and all this. So they will say that and giving clinicians, providers, doctors, prescribers feedback on how their prescribing treatment decisions are impacting patients. They aren't looking or measuring whether a patient's condition is improving, right, or getting worse. They don't have a category that says the, per- the patient was stable and had a, h- a high self-reported level of functioning over a period of years on this treatment regimen. We intervened because of the PDMP and changed that. And now they've had Multiple ED visits, right? Missed work days, reduced function, lower quality of life. We're not measuring any of that. So the, the fact of the matter is, when you think about it, these risk scores help people who don't know much about medicine, right? The oversight here in on the in the criminal and regulatory lane is the you know. Drug Enforcement Administration on the federal level and local police and, and licensing boards in the state level. Um, those folks aren't medical experts. They they don't understand how to treat a complex. But I don't understand how to treat a complex pain patient. But these police officers certainly don't. So they love a system where they can just go in and someone else is flagging for them who's a high prescriber. There there's no measurement. There's not a second column after high or medium or low prescriber that says, and these patients are, this doc. 80% of these doctors' patients have been doing better than ever, right? There's no other measurement, right, on, on how the physician's doing. It's just this relative to some other group of people. And some, so someone's always going to be a high prescriber, right? That's how that kind of math works. And they're just flagging those people constantly to depress and push down prescribing without measuring or being concerned about the impacts that that's having on patients. PDMPs don't care about that. They don't track it and they don't measure it.
1: That's exactly what you just said. And you know, you mentioned earlier about the complex patients, or like with, uh, um, and just now about how you might have to see multiple doctors. You know, Terry Lewis had pulled the patent when she was before she passed away. She was researching. I know you communicated with her quite a bit on it. Yes. And in that patent, it talked about there's a few things it did. They used to call it abusive patients and then they changed the wording to high utilizers or super utilizers. And that just means that you use the system a lot. So right away, like I think about when my Crohn's was so active and I was in the emergency room one to two times a month, I was in the hospital, I was having surgeries, I was having procedures. I was absolutely a higher super utilizer I didn't know anything about the risk scores, but that's so they're so it's like they go after they target minorities and underprivileged and sick people, people with complex illnesses are going to have a higher score. Listen to Kate address this issue of higher super utilizers.
6: Patients are basically flagged on one of two categories. One is they're flagged as overutilizers. But the definitions on what an overutilizer is vary widely. Under some of our laws, if someone has filled two prescriptions in a 12 month period, they are an overutilizer. So you're looking at someone who would have been considered an overutilizer for most of my career. I suffered a surgical injury to my spinal cord that left me unable to sit or stand or walk, except with a mobility aid for very short distances for about 15 years. I was in an extraordinary amount of pain. I tried thirty different, seven different kinds of pain treatments. I really didn't want to try opioids. But eventually, when everything else failed, I did. And they really helped me continue to work and function under really difficult circumstances. And then, uh, many years later, when surgical techniques improved, I improved and got off of them without any problem or incident. But I would definitely have been considered an overutilizer. <music>
1: Also, we saw in the algorithm, I think it was a narcotic score. It might have been the overdose risk score. If you're over 90 MME, it says it right in there, their training manuals. If you're over 90 MME, you're automatically in the top 1% of the overdose risk score or the narcotic score, and it's 650 and above. But they use this, like, did you, have you seen that HHS OIG new report that came out? I think it was in September. They looked at the Medicare Part D data, and they talked about how, like, the number of doctors shoppers they used to have and now they have and the number of like so-called dangerous prescribers they used to have and now they had and i guess they're eventually going to use this to show how the pdmp's were amazing but then how come none of the overdoses have come down jen
2: so here's the thing pdmp's are amazing at one thing reducing prescribing right prescribing is down nationally about 50 percent. but as we know in 2019 we set a record for national overdose deaths in 2020 and then yet another one in 2021. So we'll see what happens in 2022. We're not done yet. But that's been the trend. Life expectancy in the United States is down three years in a very short period of time. We've never seen anything like that when we weren't in, actively in a world war. Um, these The stats on how folks are doing out there are bad. Prescribing is fit, down at least 50%. Uh, and HHS and all these folks admit that, but the trends for patient health outcomes do not reflect any improvement. So what we can say is PDMPs did a good job of pushing down prescribing. The question is, did they incentivize a whole bunch of other collateral consequences that have dramatically harmed patients, uh, putting patients into automatic withdrawal, regardless of how they were doing or not, which is absolutely against the standard of care. And the American Medical Association has repeatedly come out and said this is malpractice, abandoning patients, people leaving the field of pain management. Folks now have to do things that the PDMP counts against them more. Because of these collateral consequences. So imagine you had a pain management specialist that was fairly proximate to your home and you live in a rural area. These folks went out of business and you're driving further and further and further. You finally get to the the next one. You now have to drive another 50 miles. And that person says, I'm not taking on any more pain patients because it's too risky. Right right? Yes. And, and this different. go and it goes on. And then you go to a, you go to a pharmacy and the pharmacist says, we're, we, we're out of opioids or we're not dispensing opioids. And then you have to drive to the next one and the next one. And this stuff's enhancing your risk score. And all you're trying to do, right, is get your medication. It's not your fault. The system has created these dynamics and it's, it's really unfortunate. I just want to emphasize to folks that I spent a lot of time in this paper that I wrote recently, but because of the way PDMPs work on the prescriber end, everyone in a set time period can be victimized by it. And here's what I mean. The prescriber comes into their computer in the morning to go about their day of seeing patients. And many of these systems push, push out a prescriber report card to prescribers and law enforcement and other folks. The system just generates these report cards. Okay. So you get that in your email inbox and you know, the state licensing board is getting a copy and the DA is getting a copy, let's say. Right. And it says, Woo, woo, woo! red flag, You're, you've just entered the group of people who we have our eye on as a high prescriber in your region, right? You may be one of only three prescribers in your region. You may be the only controlled substance prescriber in your region. So you've, you've, you've been flagged by the system. What are you, as that professional, medical professional during the day, what are you going to do? Are you going to prescribe an opioid, even if you believe it's clinically indicated, or are you going to say, I'm on the watch list? I've been told, DEA's been told, my licensing board has been told, I need to get these numbers down as fast as I can, however I can. I'm going
1: to play some clips now from Kate, from Dr. Jeffrey Singer, from Cato, and also from Maya Solovitz when she was on NPR, all addressing this issue of these report cards and the chilling effect that the PDMP may have on doctors and how it's affecting patients.
6: And now there's emerging evidence that PDAMPs may be constraining prescribing. There were economically significant reductions in prescribing to patients without any kind of suspicious history. So providers are also flagged in using this data. This is just a quote that I pulled off of Twitter from a doctor who had just gotten his regular report from his state's prescription monitoring program. Uh, this is a photograph of a letter that went out from U.S. attorney's offices in Atlanta. It also happened in Wisconsin. Basically, what constitutes an overprescriber is not really defined anywhere. In fact, it's only this recent support act that sort of has directed the Secretary of Health and Human Services to define what an overprescriber is. And so again, proxies are used. And there was a recent interview with lawyers from the Justice Department who basically said the way we've been able to get these doctors is through this data mining now. And, and we found that they have prescribed in doses higher than what the CDC recommends. But the CDC just clarified that these are, that their guideline and what they recommend, which is really for how you start a new patient on opioids, is being widely misapplied. So this is actually a misinterpretation. And yet doctors are being sent letters saying you're prescribing more than your peers. Stop. And of course, doctors are under a lot of other layers of oversights. There are state laws. Payers have enacted policies. Pharmacy chains have enacted policies. Medical boards are looking at these behaviors. And I think this nice quote from the Health and Justice Lab sort of sums up what's happening with physicians. He says... I think physicians currently believe that their prescribing practices are now vulnerable to being monitored. And unlike other aspects of their care and treatment, how they prescribe to a given patient is there for everyone to see. However, the reasons they prescribed it, the carefulness of their monitoring, and the effectiveness for the patient, that's not there. So what are the downstream effects of provider surveillance? Well, there was a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that found that 40% of primary care doctors now will not see a chronic pain patient Who uses opioids? Most studies show that some 13 million Americans use opioids long term for pain. So, this stands to affect a lot of people. Human Rights Watch issued a report at the end of last year on what's happening uh, to patients. They found that clinicians were tapering people, that is, reducing their dosages or taking them off of opioids involuntarily, and they were doing so out of fear of liability and even against their better clinical judgment. So, these things are becoming sort of a substitute for clinical judgment. Here's a quote from one of the doctors. I turn away new patients. These are folks whose records checked out. They are good citizens, but I can't afford to burn down my life and lose my license. There's another recent study that just showed that even people who are working in state law enforcement agencies are expressing concerns that PMPs are creating barriers to accessing care for people with medical needs. The evidence that's come down this year on what's happening to patients in practice is really chilling. There was a study of Medicare beneficiaries in Vermont who were at high daily doses, and the median length of time to discontinuation was one day. Now remember, this is a really dangerous practice. It's going to throw people into withdrawal. 49% had an opioid-related hospitalization or emergency room visit. There was a study that Kaiser Permanente did in Colorado that showed that just destabilizing dose, just trying to bring someone down, it resulted in a three-fold increase of an opioid-related death.
4: In his current role, the way it's functioning, where I'm required in every case to check, and I'm also given reports from my state's prescription drug monitoring board, where I'm actually ranked according to my colleagues regarding how many prescriptions I've written. And I'm classified either as, in my state, as normal, outlier, or extreme outlier. This has cast a real chilling effect on me as a, as a practitioner, and I know on my colleagues, so that more and more doctors are actually now intimidated into under-prescribing. The
5: problem is that in a criminalized environment where doctors are afraid not only of losing their license, but of going to prison, and where patients are just being squeezed because they're being told, you can only have X amount because otherwise my numbers are too high, you end up with a lot of untreated pain. Everybody is basically running scared. I spoke for the article with Dr. Sarah Wakeman, who's the head of the uh, Substance Use Disorders Initiative at Harvard and who also treats pain. And you know, she gets these reports from NarcScare on her screen and she gets these reports saying somebody's high risk or whatever, she knows these patients really well and she's at Harvard so it's unlikely that the DEA is going to come after her but she hears from her colleagues about how they get these things and they feel that if they ignore them even if they can show that they're erroneous so there's kind of many many different ways that these this can go wrong and look bad in a summary of a lot of data and the do- but the doctors are like well This is a subjective thing that I'm being told to use, and I have to look at it. I'm legally required by my state to check this. Even if I truly believe that this patient needs these medications, I don't want to get the medical board on my back. I don't want the DEA knocking on my door.
0: My girlfriend is the highest prescriber in the state. And every time she writes a script, she receives a hateful letter, a hateful email response. And another friend of mine, a physician, he sends me these emails. He's like, look, why would I continue to treat Mm -hmm. pain? Look at this intimidating email. And Rhode Island, they don't use Narc's care. But I was looking at the PMP and I see Apris's logo So it must be the platform for the PDMP and recently we received an email from the state medical board or from another government agency and now they're discussing 40 MME as being a red flag. Now my girlfriend has to sit down with the patient and show them their risk score. It's not Narcos Care but it's another risk score. So if she has 25 patients in a day, she has to go through everybody's risk score then Mm -hmm. she has to spend another three hours charting so she doesn't get put in jail right doesn't get visited by the fed then she has to go through the minutiae of trying to find these patients their pain medication and she runs into problems because the pharmacies don't want to fill it because of the person's risk score or because Mm -hmm. they've traveled too far between Mm -hmm. the doctor's office and the pharmacy and it's just this vicious circle that's never ending and the reason I have not invested in a pain clinic is I probably have a target on my back but you can't win because there's no room for there's no margin for error when you're treating right. pain and that that shit's gotta stop. So
1: this is why I think in North Carolina I'm fully convinced that the PDMP metrics are leading to patient abandonment because I like poured over the North Carolina newsletters in the medical board and the, in North Carolina they don't need a, p- a complaint against a doctor to investigate for prescribing. They investigate from complaints, but they also investigate based on certain PDMP metrics alone. It triggers investigations. One of these metrics, if you have even one patient over 100 MME, which we all know is a nonsense metric to begin with, if you have one patient on a benzo and an opioid, distance from patient to prescriber, if you even have one patient with a prescription. Over th- 30 days or longer, so that would explain why doctors change prescriptions here to 28 days or less. Why would any? So, so these doctors say dismiss a patient. Like this happens here all the time. A doctor will dismiss a patient because of a so-called failed urine screen. They don't even. They won't even talk to the patient. They literally ghost the patient. We have to figure out a way to force them to get their medical records. We call these other doctors to try to get them in, and they're like, "No, I'm not taking. I'm not taking you. No way." And I don't blame them. Why would they take them? Because we've talked to doctors who've taken on patients who were abandoned from other doctors, and they're immediately investigated by the medical board. So they're encouraging patient abandonment. And that is because of the PDMP and these metrics. So I don't understand unless their only goal, unless their only goal was putting doctors in prison, removing their license and reducing prescribing. I don't see how anyone could think the PDMP is successful.
2: Yeah. And again, to the point that I just made, even let's say you had a medical board or a pharmacy board, or even, I mean, I'm, this is probably uh, um, uh, delusional on my part, but <laughs> local law enforcement that was busy with something else, right? And, and they they weren't sweeping through the PDMP. As I just told you, the PDMP puts these entities on notice by shoving these automated reports at them that they've write that come from these algorithms and whatever these metrics boundaries are that the PDMP has created. So you're sitting there, and it just pops up. In your email or in your investigative report, or it doesn't require someone to have ever been harmed. This isn't like the U.S. tort system, right? Um, No patient has to ever be harmed by a doctor for them to be flagged by the PDMP or uh, criminally prosecuted. There's no element of damages or harm or bad outcomes to patients here. Uh, That's just not part of it.
0: Jen, can I ask you something about veterans because? I try to help my my Rhode Island veterans, and I've had some success putting them on calls with Senator Jack Reed. What advice do you have for our veterans who have been left homeless?
2: Who can they appeal to for help? There's a lot of avenues here. Veterans do tend, right, to be uh, less politically polarizing. You know, both parties say they support them. But, you know, the VA has a long history here of being underfunded, putting veterans in categories about how they're going to treat them, etc. And as I mentioned to you guys, and I don't shy away from this. I first became aware of um, this issue because I had complex veterans who were patients at VAs that were, you know, having radical changes to their treatment regimens when they were in debilitating pain. And I'm going to tell you guys something. And, you know, I had a patient who had literally stepped on an IED um, who was a veteran and, and had a half of a leg blown off and his testicles shredded and had come back to West Virginia. And um, it was just debilitating pain, right? You wouldn't wish this on, we wouldn't wish this on, on anyone. It was a a war hero, got his life back together, got some treatment for the PTSD was on um, opioids started, got a barber's license, started uh, to get back on his feet. And then this forced tapering happened, and that patient is in federal prison. What he did was he drove from West Virginia to Ohio when he was in really, really deep despair and withdrawal from his opioid treatment regimen and borrowed some prescription opioids from another veteran who was still being prescribed opioids for another pain condition. And that was distributing opioids across state lines and as a federal distribution charge, five years mandatory minimum.
1: And was that what... Okay. So first of all, I can't even speak. That's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life. So they actually put him in prison for that instead of looking to why they did it. Do you know, was that because of, or after the opioid safety initiative was put in place in the VA?
2: Yes. And at the time, um, again, and people don't realize this, VA lists all these services it it has. And I truly, look, the VA system truly tries to serve veterans. But there was an extravagantly long, four to six months long wait to get a bed for psychiatric services and or substance use services anywhere near where this veteran could get and lived. And so the veteran was in a, a an abandonment, automatic disc, medication discontinuation. Let's not even call it a taper. Medication discontinuation had been stable for, like I said, five or six years, had horrific disabilities. And... Went into withdrawal and instead of going out into the street and and looking for heroin or fentanyl, um, went to get the safe, you know, FDA approved medications from a trusted veteran friend who had been prescribed, who was trying to help him out. Again, cross state lines with those pills coming back home from Ohio to West Virginia and um, was convicted and has a federal felony.
1: How did anyone even know he did that?
2: yeah that part I don't know. He was pulled over, you know, uh, for some offense and had the prescription and it wasn't written out to him. And oh my gosh, yeah, hey um, listen.
0: if if you're a veteran and you're you're hearing this, I've got a large veteran following on TikTok. Please know we're doing everything we can to get you help. I know I'm trying to collaborate with the V a in Rhode Island because, my vets are you know they're put aside as if they're just crazy and you know they're erratic and they're they're in pain and who wouldn't have mental health issues from being in constant pain 24/7 and you know what gets me our veterans serve our country but our country does not serve our veterans and ever since this opioid Safety initiative. I don't know much about it. This, you know, Bev's conducted thousands of hours of research. My veterans, they don't know about this stupid initiative. When I take somebody to the VA, the first thing the caseworker tells me is, well, we offer chiropractic treatment, acupuncture, goat yoga, mindfulness. Um, Cut the shit. He doesn't need any of that. He needs pain medication. That's all he needs. So if you're a veteran, please know, I promise you, I promise you, folks, we're doing everything we can to bring awareness. Uh, Jen, I don't know if Bev has any questions, but I want to ask you one question. Do you discuss what's happening to pain patients to your students?
2: Yeah, I do. And I also just want to give a shout out to some of the medical centers that have invited me to give ground rounds. And speak and doing that um, at Stanford at the end of the month to medical students, right? And doctors don't often love hearing from lawyers, but I think that it's wonderful that uh, at least some institutions have been very open to receiving additional information about this and, and thinking about it in, in a more complex, nuanced way. So I, I feel that it's very important for young lawyers to understand this, but also for um, young medical students to understand this.
1: Yeah, for for sure. I do have two more questions. But before I forget, I want to mention, can you tell us the name of your paper? We're going to link it in the show notes, but I want to make sure people hear it um, in case they want to read it.
2: The most recent paper is called Dosing Discrimination, Regulating PDMP Risk Scores, and it's in the California Law Review. And um, I'm happy to send a link and I appreciate you for asking.
1: Yes, I'm definitely going to link it. You told me you're working on another paper also, right?
2: Yeah, so this this next paper is this paper that I just said, Dosing Discrimination, lays out all these issues with the algorithm and at the end says the best universal solution so individual patients don't have to sue and the like is um, FDA intervention. Uh, the paper I'm working on now is called Prescribing Algorithmic Discrimination. We'll explore the various different forms of private litigation that patients could engage in if they're subjected to PDMP discrimination or treatment discrimination, ranging from medical malpractice and products liability lawsuits to the classic civil rights statutes, the anti-discrimination provision of the Accountable Care Act in 1557, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, et cetera. And we'll look at the strengths and weaknesses of bringing individual or class action lawsuits under those various statutes.
1: Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy because that gives me hope that there can be lawsuits cuz that's all I've ever wanted is like to to ban this or regulate it and and get some compensation for patients who have been hurt by it. I do have two sort of quick questions. The first one I'm going to ask is you once told me that sent me the a bamboo health manual and you showed me how it it lists in it how it's possible that given certain medication like buprenorphine um, in certain formulations would trigger their algorithm to think the patient has OUD and therefore has a higher risk score. So my question to you is, so if a pain patient is getting these medications for pain, even if they don't have an OUD diagnosis in their chart, does it still trigger a higher score?
2: Well, like I said, they that was their written material that they they said this. We know for sure that any opioid is going to give you a higher risk score, right? So Suboxone, you know, buprenorphine, as you just mentioned, and, and even agonists that are used to treat opioid use disorder are going to give you a higher risk score. Uh, and I always found that incredibly frustrating because you're now, well, get this, you guys. Let's say I I say, Jennifer Oliva, I have opioid use disorder. Please give me treatment. And my um, primary care provider uh, has a DA registration and is, and is eligible to prescribe me buprenorphine and I'm on buprenorphine. Now the PDMP is telling us that I'm at high risk for OUD, which is something that I'm saying that I have and I want treatment for.
5: Mm-hmm. Oh, my you God. Know,
2: Right. So that's sort of counterintuitive and something that I could be dealt with fairly easily on the um, coding side of things. But right now, those opioids are opioids. And like I said, Bev, we already talked about this. There are any number of other things that enhance your opioid score that don't even involve opioids. But be clear, people, opioids that you're taking for any number of reasons can enhance a score, even if you're taking them to treat your opioid use disorder.
5: Yeah,
1: that's, we're interviewing someone who's, uh, I love this girl. She's a harm reduction um, activist and she has opioid use disorder. She's on like this tiny dose of take home methadone. I mean, it's like, she's down to like seven milligrams or six. I mean, she's almost down to nothing, but she's um, doing amazing. She has a kid and uh, out of nowhere, her methadone clinic was like, oh, um, your PDMP showed that you got, uh, uh, Adderall. And she's like, well, I've never had Adderall. So can you show me who prescribed it and where it was filled?" And they're like, Nope, we don't have time for that. We're just telling you it's in there. And so now she's like freaked out that it's going to like affect her take home methadone, which it, which it very well may. And she, I said, well, let's get, it's in Pennsylvania. I said, contact them and get an expedited report. See, this is why I want to fight to have access because to these, to these reports and these scores, because they said it'll take at least a month to get it. And then if there's a mistake, it'll take at least six months after that to fix it. But all that while it'll be worked into NARC's care and then she's going to be also targeted. So this whole, I mean, do you think there's any way for us to fight to have access to the PDMP, at least like we do um, electronic health records? Yeah,
2: and I think that that, unfortunately right now that fights at the state level. But if if you don't mind me saying a little bit more about this, Bev, is that the, yeah. you know, in the majority of states, patients don't have, any access to the PDMP. And there's a bunch of states that just make it really difficult. And again, I'm only talking about Indiana because I just did a deep dive in Indiana yesterday, but I looked this up Bev, because you and I have talked about it. In Indiana, a patient cannot have access to their PDMP report unless the physician agrees to give it to them. Um, you cannot go to the PDMP agency and get it. You cannot get it from your pharmacist. And so the in their, QN, their FAQs, you guys can look this up yourself in Indiana, um, how would you correct an error in the PDMP? And here's their answer, Bev. Their answer is you have to keep receipts from each dispensing pharmacy you've used throughout your medical history. And if you notice a discrepancy in a report that you, by the way, cannot see. So you have to believe this just based on that score doesn't sound right. And of course, I don't know what's going in the score. So suspend all of that imagination. But if you think this score sounds wrong, you have to go to the each individual dispensing pharmacy, show them the receipt, and ask them to put in a record correction for you. It goes back to that dispenser. So the steps and the documentation uh, and the effort that would be needed to be made by a patient here, and they're doing all this blind, they don't actually get to see the report themselves, is a, is incredible.
0: It, and they're doing it all sick. So you have a sick yeah. person who is in pain and now they have to learn about the PDMP. So you just said something and and this is something that our listeners can do. What we need to do is we need to get legislation sponsored in all 50 states discussing how the consumer can get the power back from these crazy algorithms this, this is a discussion that needs to be had in, in at all, all the state legislatures mm-hmm. because no and and but let me tell you Jen I sit down with these lawmakers and they're like what's a pdmp <laughs> what's an algorithm what's so you know we have to and this is some this is how we can really get our listeners involved. I have one more
1: comment, Claudia, that mm-hmm. I have to, because I've seen Jen kick ass about this. Mm-hmm. And, and she's the only one I've ever seen really talk about this. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's so concerned about databases because of reproductive rights. Where were you all these years? So can you comment on that? Because I love hearing you talk about it.
2: Yeah, so here's the thing. We've learned through COVID and now, of course, post-Dobbs with the reproductive justice advocates how tenuous many of these laws are anyway, right? So HIPAA, oh, everyone thinks they have HIPAA protection, but you know, oftentimes, especially in the drug use context that we're talking about here, hospitals will report you uh, for suspected use to law enforcement or CPS and all this stuff. And this had been going on for years. People viewed as drug seeking were reported, all this stuff we're talking about. Now, folks were really worried that hospitals were gonna be sharing their reproductive health information with law enforcement in these abortion criminalization states after the Supreme Court decision in June. And the Biden administration came out with HIPAA guidance right right away. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Here's what HIPAA requires. Second example, any hospital that receives federal funding to provide emergency services to uh, patients in need, regardless of their ability to pay, right? So most people know about Imtala. Again, now we're worried, well, what if you go to an abortion criminalization state and you are having a pregnancy complication that may require an uh, an abortion or something? What are these doctors supposed to do? They're caught between the federal and state law. Well, the Biden administration issued guidance saying Imtala trumps these statutes at the state level. PDMPs got no, you know, no attention with this stigmatized group of people that have been at the brunt of it. But 28 states have statutes that say controlled substances are quotes, unquotes" other drugs of concern. Nebraska has long incorporated in their PDMP every prescription in the state. Doesn't need to be a controlled substance. Any script you get. Imagine the most minor thing you might get with a, for a child with a cold is going in the PDMP in Nebraska. So you're at great exposure here without any change in the law, without ever having to go to the state legislature, you could end up in these abortion restricted restriction straits. The easy way for them to track this medication abortion is in the PDMP. The infrastructure is already up and standing. The federal government paid for it. And they're interoperable, meaning almost 40 states talk to one another's PDMPs. So even blue states could be an or, or, or lenient states that protect abortion healthcare could facilitate, right, information back to a restrictive state about a patient who crossed state lines and ended up creating problems for the provider of the patient. When this starts happening, I, I imagine because of the two examples I just gave you, we'll see a massive uproar about these PDMPs. Um, that we have not seen, no matter how hard we've stomped our feet for the last decade, about these same, very similar concerns, just with a different patient population.
5: And
1: then we could say, well, you guys did it, you all fought for it, the government funded it, and, and, and no one would listen, and this is the outcome.
2: That's right. It's, it's going to be unfortunate, but I think people are going to be really scandalized. Bev, much like you, and Claudia mentioned this too, you guys asked, are we talking to this, uh, about these things to the law students and medical students? We are. Many people have never heard of this. Many people who are in Narc's care, I always ask people when I go um, to events, you guys, raise your hand if you've had a, a dog or cat spayed or neutered in the last, you know, 10 years. And then they all raise their hands, and I'm like, well, you're in the PDMP and the sh- just shock and awe in the room because a lot of folks uh, are unaware of this. But I guarantee you it will make headlines when that first state decides to go ahead and use this to track uh, medication abortion.
0: Or... Or I think our country has more compassion for pets, right? (laughs) So can you imagine if we showed the same outrage? You know, when you see those SPCA commercials come on and the the sick dog and, oh, my God, the country would lose their minds right but for a pet but not for humans not for our veterans well
1: because it's all about you know I'll never believe that any of these people Andrew Kolodny Gary Mandel all these people we talk about that they ever really care about removing stigma from addiction because really what it is is they hate people who use drugs they really hate people who use drugs because that's what it boils down to I mean they're adding stigma they look at us as people who we all kind of have addiction they're trying to put us all in the same category and they hate all of us but they love to make it like we're removing stigma, but they, they've only created stigma for for anybody who use dr- uses drugs, whether it's for pain, whether it's for addiction, whatever reason, they hate them all. These are evil people.
0: You know, I'm I'm still stuck on that veteran story. It's oh. just so sad, and I think if anybody deserves to lose their testicles, it would be because <laughs> I'm I'm just stuck on that <laughs> crazy vision. It's in my head. So, so Jen, we're so grateful that you took over an hour of your time to be with two big mouth advocates, Bev and Claudia. And don't forget, folks, follow Jen. Follow her work on Twitter. You're on LinkedIn, Jen, also?
2: I am. I'm actually at the University of California Hastings. I, ju- I just joined their faculty in August. And Beautiful. I do I do have a website. If you just put in Oliva and Hastings, I pop right up because I'm the only Oliva. Okay. I'm going
1: to link everything in the show
2: notes, Jen. Yeah, that's great. And if you guys can put the Twitter, that's good because I, you, you know, you both know this half of the stories I got that weren't veterans were because you guys, you know what I mean? Made people aware that they could let me tell me stuff. What they if- put me in charge of their health law center out here. and uh, So we're going to focus on, we're going to focus on this stuff in this center, which is just a great opportunity for me. I uh, Thanks for letting me tell the story. And if it's too much, take it out, but no. it, it, it was the veterans. So when Veb, Bev and I started talking and she was saying this stuff's happening even outside the VA. I mean, it was just too much. I was primed to be outraged because I was, th- I, I met the guy who was in prison. He was in prison, oh, was in prison at Hazleton crazy. Prison in West mm-hmm. Virginia. And um, he asked to speak with me. And we, uh, me and my students went down there um, to help him with his benefits. Oh wow. my! When, how, when
1: does he get out? He's out.
2: Oh, he's out. He,
1: he, yeah. he was
2: like in year three, but he had to serve five years in federal prison with his scrambled up testicles and one leg.
1: Did he ever get pain treatment again?
2: no nah, they won't so, give you shit in federal prison. You yeah. know, he, yeah, he was, he was, a, he was this poor man. I never seen. I mean, you would look at him and feel the pain because it was so. You know, this was like.
1: So what does he do? Like, what what do people do like that? They either have the option of going to the street, self medicating with alcohol. Like, what are the ch- what are the choices? Anyway? Most
2: of the men, okay. When you guys brought the women up earlier, most yeah. of the male veterans they all like use each other's supply as long as they could. And yeah. then they went, then they went to the street. That
1: last date got cut off. But what Jen was saying is the male veterans tended to use each other's supplies and use what they had. And then they went to the street. This was a third episode of our Care slash PDMP series. I hope you listened to the first two. Next week, we have an episode where we interviewed Jacob James Rich. He will also be talking about the PDMP and we'll focus more next week on HIPAA, why HIPAA doesn't protect you when it comes to the PDMP or things like Narc's Care. We go into the third party clause and what that means and also law enforcement having access to the PDMP. um, And we go into all of that in detail. So I hope you listen next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it was longer than normal, but there is just so much information we want you to have. And I hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying.